We're in uh, Second Chronicles. Second Chronicles, thirty-six. Thirty-six. Last week, remember we uh, finished off uh, Josiah. He was killed in battle, and um, now we're going to read through chapter thirty-six, and we'll we'll draw some principles from the scriptures. So let's uh, you can follow along in your Bibles, and I'll, I'll read from. Uh, 2 Chronicles chapter 36, the people of the land took Jehoahaz, the son of Josiah, and made him king in the father's uh, place in Jerusalem. And Jehoahaz was 23 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned three months in Jerusalem. And then the king of Egypt deposed him in Jerusalem and laid on the land a tribute of a hundred talents of silver and a talent of gold. And the king of Egypt made uh, Eliakim his brother king over Judah and Jerusalem and changed his name to Jehoiakim. But Necho took Jehoahaz, his brother, and carried him to Egypt. And Jehoiakim was 25 years old when he began to reign. And he reigned 11 years in Jerusalem. And he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord his God. Against him came up Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and bound him in chains and took him to uh, Babylon. And Nebuchadnezzar also carried part of the vessels of the house of the Lord to Babylon and put them in his palace in Babylon. Now the rest of the acts of Jehoiakim and the abominations that he did and what was found against him, behold, they are written in the book of kings of Israel and Judah. And Jehoiachin... um, his son reigned in his place. And Jehoiachin was 18 when he became king, and he reigned three months and ten days in Jerusalem. <laughs> he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Tell it goes in the family. <laughs> Verse 10, And in the spring of the, year, of the year, King Nebuchadnezzar sent and brought him to Babylon with the precious vessels of the house of the Lord and made his brother... Zedekiah king over Jerusalem and Jerusalem, over king over Judah and Jerusalem. And Zedekiah was 21 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 11 years in Jerusalem. He did what was evil in the sight of the Lord his God. He did not humble himself before Jeremiah the prophet, who spoke from the mouth of the Lord. He also rebelled against King Nebuchadnezzar, who had made him swear by God. He stiffened his neck and hardened his heart against turning to the Lord, the God of Israel. All the officers of the priests and the people likewise were exceedingly unfaithful, following all the abominations of the nations, and they polluted the house of the Lord that he had made holy in Jerusalem. Verse 15, the Lord, the God of their fathers, sent persistently to them by his messengers because he had compassion on his people and on his dwelling place. But they kept mocking the messengers of God, despising his words and scoffing at his prophets until the wrath of the Lord rose against his people until there was no remedy. Verse 17, Therefore he brought up against them the king of the Chaldeans, who killed their young men with the sword in the house of their sanctuary and had no compassion on young men, Uh, on young man or virgin, old man or aged. He gave them all into his hand. 
and all the vessels of the house of God, great and small, and the treasures of the house of the Lord, and the treasures of the king, and all of his princes, all these he brought to Babylon. And they burned the house of God, and broke down the wall of Jerusalem, and burned all its palaces with fire, and destroyed all its precious vessels. Verse 20, and he took into exile in Babylon those who had escaped from the sword. And they became servants to him and to his sons until the establishment of the kingdom of Persia to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah until the land had enjoyed, enjoined, uh, enjoyed its Sabbaths. All the days that it lay desolate, it kept Sabbath to fulfill 70 years. Now in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, the word of the Lord by mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing. Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever is among you of all of his people, may the Lord his God be with you, let him go up. We see the judgment of God finally falling in its finality upon Judah and their uh, disobedient kings for the most part. A lot of times people don't like to talk about God's judgment. We talk about God's love a lot, uh, but you don't hear a lot of messages on God's judgment. I think it was uh, C.S. Lewis who heard of he was listening to a young pastor from England preach and he just got out of seminary and so he was kind of hoity-toity with all his words and at the end of his sermon he was trying to tell the people they needed to come to Christ and he said it this way he says if you receive Jesus Christ you will have eternal life but if you do not it will drastically alter your eschatological destiny and Lewis, after the guy was done, pulled the preacher aside and he said, young man, do you mean that they will go to hell? Is that what you meant when you said that? And he kind of hesitantly said, well, yeah. <laughs> and Lewis responded to him. He says, then tell him so. <laughs> Say it. See, and we don't, we don't like to go there a lot because that's, that's kind of a hard subject matter. And... He, he, it's very important that we are clear that God does love us. He does provide salvation for us, but he also has a judgment that will take place one day. And uh, there's not a whole lot of, you know, we used to call them hellfire and brimstone preachers, right? Um, well, sometimes they're off base too, because all you hear from them is judgment, 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 no grace. Right? Very legalistic mindset. So you have to have a balance of what the Word of God says. And, and that's what's important to understand who God is. That is, is God love? Yes. But is God holy and just? And will God carry out his judgment? Yes. And it just seems strange to me that there's a lot of Bible, church, Bible teaching churches today that avoid the subject of God's wrath. They avoid the subject of God's judgment. And it's a theme that's throughout the Bible, from Revelation all the way back to Genesis. But it's important that even Jesus himself spoke of God's judgment. And so we can't 
call ourselves Christians and avoid that subject matter. Um, and so, if the, the truth were known, the theme of God's judgment embarrasses most of us. We don't know what to do with it. It's hard for us to explain that because it's, it's so far out of touch and out of step with our modern-day, you know, tolerant, everybody-gets-a-trophy culture. But the Bible is clear, and I wrote there on the top of the outline, although God is patient and compassionate, when people continue to reject his word, judgment is certain. You can guarantee it. It may not happen immediately. It may happen immediately. Uh, But the text makes it pretty clear that uh, this is the end of the line for the kingdom of Judah. God's had it. It's over. And the godly king, Josiah, remember last week, was killed in a battle he shouldn't have been involved in by Pharaoh Necho. And, and then his son um, took over the throne and lasted three months before Pharaoh deposed him and took him captive to Egypt. And then Pharaoh installed his older brother, Jehoiakim, to the throne. He lasted for 11 years. He was first under the, the subject of Pharaoh and then later Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon. But in verse 5 there, look at what it says. It says, he committed abominations. He did evil in the sight of the Lord. And, you know, he, he, they just continue this pattern. And it's kind of like God can take so much. And after his death, his 18-year-old son, Jehoiachin, took over for three months and ten days. I thought that was interesting. Three months and ten days, you know, um, before Nebuchadnezzar took him to Babylon, where he spent 37 years in prison, historians tell us. And even, even so, he managed in three months, verse 9, in our text there says, in three months he, he, he was able to, to do evil in the sight of the Lord. It's just, it continues. It just continues. And Nebuchadnezzar replaced Jehoiachin with his uncle Zedekiah, son of Josiah. You think that maybe he would have learned something, but it didn't. He also did evil, verse 12 says. Finally, he rebelled personally against Nebuchadnezzar. They besieged Jerusalem, which fell, and it was sacked in the summer of 586 B.C. That's what we see happening there in verse 19. And those who escaped the sword, those who weren't killed, were taken as slaves to Babylon. And so the, the 70 years in verse 21 might be a reference. refers to the time from the first uh, deportation, 605, to the return of the exiles in 536 B.C. And none of this happened just by chance. Uh, it tells us very clearly in verse 21. Look at what it says. It says... Um, uh, it happened to fulfill what? The word of the Lord by the mouth of the prophet Jeremiah. And so it's, it's, you don't want to be in their, their situation. You don't want to be in their position. It's a horrible thing. It's a dreadful thing, I believe, when God's acts of judgment falls upon a nation. I think we see that in our own country. Um, but before we look at God's judgment, let's look at his, the first point there, God is patient and compassionate 
towards sinful people. Because like I said, you have to look at this in a balanced approach, right? You can't just say, oh, God's filled with wrath and he's going to carry out judgment on everybody. No, that's not the case. So the first point there, that God is patient and compassionate towards sinful people. I mean, there's how many times have we read this? And he did evil in the sight of the Lord, right? And then God raised up somebody. They got the message. They changed. You know, we saw it in the, with the judges as well, right? They go through this cycle. And, and we see it with countries even today. And there had been a, a lot of highs and low points during this almost 400 years since Solomon had begun this cycle of idolatry. And some of the lows were so bad that you would have thought, at times, why doesn't God do something? Why doesn't his judgment just wipe them out, for goodness sake? I'm getting tired of reading this. And they did evil on the sight of the Lord again, you know. Um, but he stayed his hand. He was compassionate. He was gracious, merciful, um, and over those years, he patiently waited and entreated. Look at what it says in verse 15 of chapter 36. It says, The Lord, the God of their father, sent persistently to them by his message. So he, he, he didn't give up. He said, they're not getting the message, but I'm going to continue to send these guys. Why? Because he had compassion on his people and on his dwelling place. Praise God that he's not only holy and just but he's also compassionate he's loving um, instead of that phrase phraseology there in the ESV where it says he he, he sent persistently to them um, some versions say he sent again and again over and over they were hearing this message repent turn to the Lord the King James phrases it this way he rose up early God rose up early. He was eager to share a compassionate message with them. It's a picture of God's earnestness in seeking to bring this rebellious nation um, to repentance. See, God is more patient and way more compassionate towards sinners than we could ever dream of being, right? I mean, you and I, we're, we're going, get them, God. I mean, even with people in our own government, right? God, God, get them. You know, well, that's not right. You know, we need to pray for them. We need to pray that God would break through their hardness of heart and their pagan beliefs and everything else and, and convert them, show them their need of a Savior. God can do that. He's done it before. I mean, I'm reminded of the Old Testament story of Jonah, right? I mean, I'm not going to go preach to these people. What if they repent? I don't, I don't want to do that, God. And he literally ran the other way. Um, because we, we feel in our own logical flesh that, you know what, they're getting what they deserve. That's good that they, God judges them. But God is more patient and compassionate towards sinners than we could ever dream of being. And because of, you know, I, I, when you watch the news, I mean, it can be a real downer, right? You watch the news and you just walk away frustrated. You walk away depressed if you watch it regularly. You know, that's why I watch Gunsmoke. But, you know, it's, it's just, <laughs> good guy wins, you know. It's, it's just kind of an important thing to realize the modern news media, with, with the ability of what we see, you can, you can watch what's happening in live time around the world, all the bad that's going on. And you're just inundated with it. Um, 
all the murders, all the wars, all the child abuse, all the sexual perversity, all the other atrocities that are, that are going on throughout the world, you see it right there on your big TV screen in your living room in full living color. Much more than previous generations could ever dream of seeing. We see all this going on, and, and it, it disgusts us as believers. We look at it, and we get frustrated. It's like, wow, Lord, how long is it going to be before you judge this world or you judge this country? But did you ever think of this? That God, in his infinite understanding in his mind, sees every evil deed. Even those committed in secret that aren't on the big screen. And not only that, but he knows every evil thought that crosses your mind. That never gets carried out in a deed. See, we forget that. And we're quick to judge other sinners. But you know what? If he were as swift in judging sinners as we were, as we desire his judgment to fall, we may never make the cut. <laughs> you know, we might not reach that point of repentance if God crossed us out the first time we sinned. And so, after delivering one of his defiant his speeches, the 19th century atheist, Ingersoll, he pulled his watch out of his pocket. He's an atheist. And he said in front of the, the, the people he's talking to, according to the Bible, God has struck men dead for blasphemy. And that's what he just did through his speech. And he said this, I will blaspheme him and give him five minutes to strike me dead and damn my soul. And he stood there in front of these people and with a stopwatch running. And it says the crowd was silent while well, one minute ticked by. Two minutes passed. You could feel the nervousness in the audience. Three minutes, a woman fainted. Four minutes, and Ingersoll curled his lip. At five minutes, he snapped his stopwatch shut, put it in his pocket, and said, you see, there is no God, or he would have taken me at my word. That story was later told to a British preacher by the name of Joseph Parker. And he responded with this. Did that American gentleman think that he would exhaust the patience of God in five minutes? <laughs> and I thought, that's a, good, that's a good comeback to that. God is patient toward sinners. Right? Praise God for that. But in spite of his great patience, point two, people continue, continue to reject the word of God. And we see this with a vengeance today. I mean, just read through Romans 1, right? They're suppressing the truth of God. You see it inside the church. You see it outside the church. And in spite of God's repeated, remember, he went back to them again and again and again. He's appealing to them, please, you know, repent. Just come to me. I'll forgive you. What did the people of Israel do? Verses 15 to 16, they continued to reject his word that God gave him gave them through the prophets. Um, why would people reject God's gracious offer of forgiveness? Why would you do that? I could see if you had to apologize and God's still going to send you to hell. 
then maybe he wouldn't apologize, right? Well, I'm going to get what I'm going to get. But if you have the opportunity to come to a God who's gracious and you turn from your sin and you turn to the Savior and he's willing to save you, well, there's four reasons why people reject it. And the first one is because of pride. Verse 12. Verse 12. He did what was evil in the sight of the Lord his God. He did not what? Humble himself before Jeremiah the prophet who spoke from the mouth of of the Lord. Now, this is something we all deal with. Um, Zedekiah did not humble himself before Jeremiah the prophet. That's what God's word requires of us. It requires sinners to respond in what? With humility. With a brokenness of heart. And why does he require that? Because it, it helps us confront our own wicked ways. It helps us see ourselves for who we really are. And what's that do? That brings us to the cross. And when you come to the cross with a broken heart, humbled with humility, and your pride is gone, um, there's nowhere to boast. Because you realize that your salvation is not based on who you are. It's not based on what you do. It's based on a, on a simple act of God forgiving you. Because he chose to. But because of our, our pride, you know, I think three of the the most difficult words to say is simply, you know what, I was wrong. I'm sorry, I was wrong. Sometimes people come to you and say, well, you know, you said this and that really offended me. And I'll say, well, you know what, I I'm sorry what I said offended you. Let me clarify what I said, you know. And, and sometimes it's not even directed to anybody. But you know what, when you're speaking the word of God, it has the ability to cut through all that stuff and go right to somebody's heart and when they're not listening correctly, they can take it as kind of a personal dig at, at them from you, and it's not. It's not at all. It's just the Word of God doing what it does. But it's that pride. We don't like to be told that we have to apologize. We don't like to be told that I'm wrong. We don't want to tell people that. Um, no one can come to God who will not, first of all, humble themselves before a holy God, and then secondly, admit their sin. Admit their sin. Um, I've talked to people who, quote, came to Christ. And I'll ask them one question. And I can discern really quick whether they're really born again or not. I'll say, do you think you're a good person? And depending on how they answer that question, I can be pretty sure of their eternal state. Because I've had a lot of people that have been in church a lot of years say, well, yeah, I'm a good person. <laughs> Really? See, I don't think any Bible-believing Christian thinks they're a good person. Because before a holy God, you're not. That's why you need His grace. Right? We're, we're, none of us are good people. We, we sin probably on a daily basis before a holy God, even with the Holy Spirit. So we, we need to stop the pride stuff, set that aside, and humble ourselves before God. And just accept His grace. Just accept what He says about you is true. And, and once you get beyond that, it's easy to apologize. Because you really understand that, yeah, I probably did do something. And maybe it wasn't malicious. Maybe I didn't mean it. But even if that person perceived it as wrong, okay, I need to, I need to humble myself and apologize. Secondly, people reject God's word because of the hardness of their hearts. That's what it says there in verse 13. 
It says, he also rebelled against King Nebuchadnezzar, who made him swear by God. It says, he stiffened his neck and hardened his heart against turning to the Lord, the God of Israel. And you, you, you look at that and you say, wow, this is, you know, interesting. I think it was George Orwell who said this, on the whole, human beings want to be good, but not too good. And not quite all the time, right? I mean, the problem with humanity is what? The depravity that we have. It's complete depravity. And in our day of modern day positive Christianity, we take the doctrine of depravity and we say, well, that's hard for people to hear. You know, that, that doesn't help their self-esteem. Well, we're not here to help your self-esteem. Um, we're here to teach you the truth. Um, we see it throughout our culture today, right? Um, we don't like to think about it. We don't use the term. Uh, you know, the only time we do is if maybe somebody's really done something really, really, really bad. Well, that person's depraved. Um, but I'm not. I'm, I'm a pretty good person. I would never do something like that. I'm not like that person, right? But the Bible teaches very clearly that every human heart is depraved. Every human heart is depraved. This doesn't mean that every human being is as bad as they could possibly be. We would never exist if that were the case. It doesn't mean that. Uh, we would be destructed a long time ago. And, and because of common grace and really the restraining ministry even of the Holy Spirit while he's here, there's a, a lot of, of people who are decent, law-abiding, quote, good people, according to the world standard, who do not know Christ. But depravity means that because of the fall, this is what it means, every person has this inborn bent toward sin. We're attracted to sinful things. And part of that rebellious nature within us says, you know what, I don't want to submit to somebody else, including God. That's why it's always a struggle for us when you're coming to Christ or you're sharing the word with somebody or you're sharing the gospel with somebody and, you know, they, they just can't do it. It's hard to do that. And God's word is clear. Why? Because in Romans 3.10 it says, there's none, what? Righteous. No, not one. Not even one. Not the Pope. Nobody. Okay. Um, it was George Bernard Shaw who concluded this in response to the German concentration camps. He said, There is only one empirically verifiable doctrine of theology original sin. <laughs> original sin. So you have the pride of the human heart. You have the hardness of human hearts. And then the third reason people reject God's word is because of worldly influence. Look at verse 14. It says, All the officers of the priests and the people, what? Likewise, were exceedingly unfaithful, following all the abominations of the nations. And they polluted the house of the Lord that he had made holy, in Jerusalem. They followed all the abominations. Because all have sinned, and we ourselves have a bent towards sin, we are prone 
to the sinful influence of others. What we, we just are. We see people engaging in sin who seem to be enjoying life. And so what, what happens? It, it, it draws us in. And we have to be careful with that. And our generation is bombarded with probably more solicitations to sin than any other generation in history. It's all around us. It's on your phone. It's on your TV. It's, it's everywhere. It's on billboards, on the freeway. It's, I mean, everywhere you turn, there's a temptation facing you. All you have to do is turn on your TV. You can bring all that filth for free right into your living room if you want. Um, worldly influence combined with our own self-gratifying sinful nature is a very, very, very powerful force. And we have to acknowledge that. And so people reject God's word because of the pride in their life. They won't humble themselves before God. Secondly, because of the hardness of their heart. Thirdly, because of worldly influence. And then fourthly, people reject God's word because they don't take God's warnings seriously. They don't take God's warnings seriously. Look at what they did in verse 16. It says, but they kept mocking. This was their lifestyle. This is something they did. They kept mocking the messengers of God, despising his words, scoffing at his prophets, until the wrath of the, God, of, of the Lord rose up against his people until there was no remedy. I mean, people have always, they've always mocked the idea of God's judgment because they mistake God's delay in judgment for, well, it's never going to happen. It will happen. That's what we're reading about on Sunday mornings. We're going through First Thessalonians and we're realizing that, wow, I mean, you know, we're talking about the rapture. We're talking about, you know what, we, as Christians, we're not going to be here when God unleashes his wrath here on this world and his judgment on the world. We're going to be kept from that. But people have always mocked the idea. We read that verse from Peter's epistle, right? How they say, oh, where's this, you know, where is he? He said, this has been going on for so long. You know, you've been saying he's coming back for so long. Um, they mistake God's delay. They mistake God's patience, really his grace. And they presume upon that. Uh, or they compare themselves with those who are more, more sinful. And, you know, it's the old comparison thing. Well, if God does judge us, he's going to judge my neighbor because that guy's a total pagan. But I'm okay. Right? That, that's what happens. But they flatter themselves. They flatter themselves. They think that they're above God's judgment. And, and we neglect God's warnings to our own destruction, really. Um, someone told me at Niagara Falls, you could take a little boat thing or whatever above the falls, and there used to be a sign as you'd get closer to the falls, and this sign said, point of no return. And the idea was, if you go beyond the sign, you're going, <laughs> you're going over the falls. I don't care what kind of boat you got. And so they stayed a good, healthy distance back there. And God's warnings are like that. Even though he's patient. You know, don't, don't think that, oh, well, it seems calm enough. I mean, I don't think he's really going to do this judgment thing here on earth. No, he will. And 
so we just need to be reminded that pride, hardness of hearts, uh, worldly influence, and not taking God's judgment seriously can really put ourselves in a heap of trouble. Well, the third point here, if God's, if people ignore God's word, judgment is certain. Even though he's patient, praise God for his patience. But if you continue to ignore God's word, God's judgment is certain. Look at what it says in verse 16 there. I read, just read it. It said, until there was no, what? Remedy. There was no remedy. There's nothing more that can be done. I mean, can you imagine being a person at that point in life where God says, I gave you everything I'm going to give you. That's it. Nothing more. And both nations and individuals can reach the point of being so hardened by sin that there is no remedy. There's no remedy. I've seen it in people's lives. Just because God is patient, just because God is hesitant to judge, it's no reason to doubt that he will judge because he has to judge. There's a couple things I want you to understand here about God's certain judgment. First of all, how is it ex- expressed? And then also, how do we know it is certain? Well, let's look at how it is expressed, first of all. God's judgment is expressed, first of all, temporarily and eternally. It's, it's expressed temporarily and eternally. And this is what we see, God's temporal judgment here in 2 Chronicles chapter 36. God's judgment upon a, a particular group of people at a particular point in history. That's God's temporal judgment. It can be lifted at any time, as we see at the end of the, the chapter when Cyrus issued an edict for the Jews to return to their land, right? And when God's temporal judgment falls on a nation... It's a very, very frightening thing. We've witnessed it, even in our modern day, in, in places like Rwanda and other countries that, boy, I mean, the society is completely ripped apart. In Judah, in this case, families were uprooted uh, from their homes. They were taken from their homes. They were deported to Babylon. Many of them were killed by the sword. Those who survived ended up being slaves. Um, There was a complete political oppression going on. They had no religious freedom at all. Uh, Their their place of worship was destroyed. The temple was destroyed. In Babylon, you can read this in Daniel, the king tried to force them to what? To change their worship, bow down to his image. They weren't free to do whatever they wanted any longer. Israel was no longer a testimony for the Lord to the nations because of their sinfulness, their, their hardness of heart. And the thing that's hard to understand, and it's hard for us to grasp at times, we have to understand this, though. When God's temporal judgment falls on a nation, not only do the ungodly suffer, but guess what? The godly suffer as well. You know what? When you get on a key market and you buy a gallon of milk, <laughs> guess what? You're paying the same as the person who's not a Christian. You don't get a discount because you're a Christian, right? Or a gallon of gas or whatever. And that's, that's a, 
I believe that's, that's part of God's judging our nation. He said, oh, you think you're a wealthy nation? We'll, we'll, we'll work this out real quick for you. Um, we need to understand that when it falls on a nation, not only do the ungodly suffer, but the, suffer, the godly suffer as well. Children suffer for the parents' sins. We see this throughout this whole book, right? I mean, and the, the son took over and he did evil in the sight of the Lord. He did evil in the sight of the Just They continue it. Once in a while, they'll break the change, the chain, but usually it just passes right down. And while God had compassion before judgment, he says so in verse 15, he kept on trying to get them to come back to him, trying to give them everything they need through the prophets to repent. Basically, the Babylonians were the instrument of God's judgment. And guess what? They had no compassion. Verse 17. They had no compassion at all. Girls were raped, the elderly and the sick were slaughtered, pregnant mothers were ripped open with the sword, babies were dashed against the rocks. It goes on and on and on. They had no compassion. It's an awful thing, not only for those who had thumbed their nose at God in this situation, but also for those who had sought to obey them. They felt the same wrath the good and wicked alike are afflicted when God's acts, acts of judgment falls in this temporal way. And this means that you can't be complacent. We can't say, oh, because we're a Christian, you know, it's not going to affect us. No. Guess what? The sins of our nation will affect us. I brought this up before. It's interesting now that I think one of the biggest blights on our nation was the abortion issue, right? I mean, I think we would all agree that. And it's been a kind of a mandate across the country. Well, now it's not a national mandate, but what? It's, it's kicked back to the states. So I was talking to one brother one day, and I said, it's going to be interesting to see what God does now. Because there are certain states that are very, very much pro-life. I mean, they're not, they're not tolerating abortion. And yet you have places like California that are saying, hey, we'll pay your airfare. Come and kill your baby here. We'll have a party for you. Right? You don't think God's going to not judge that? I just wonder if that judgment's going to be more local. I mean, because California's not the place it was before. I mean, I remember when I moved out here in, in the 80s, it was wonderful. Now it's like, ugh, I live in California. <laughs> you know? I mean, and if I could move, I would. But God wants me here for some reason. This dark corridor of the peninsula preaching a message no one wants to hear but you know what we can't be complacent um, because we're, we're sadly mistaken if we think that because we know christ and we obey god that somehow we're immune of god's temporal judgment on this land god could remove the lampstand of christianity anytime from america and I think some people think he already has. I don't quite go that far, but I'm still holding out hope. I remember when we went to Israel with David Hawking, and before we went to Israel, we spent about a week and a half in Turkey, and we visited all the churches of Revelation, all the sites in Turkey. And you know, today I think there's maybe 100,000 Christians in Turkey, it's predominantly Muslim country. But... Um, you know, this was where 
all this stuff started. And now they're completely turned the other way. It's, 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 it's amazing. And so there's a lot of, of things that can happen to our country that... And it's happening. We see it before our eyes. And we just need to continue to pray. We need to continue to win each soul, one soul at a time, one heart at a time to the Lord. And we know that when this starts to happen and unfurl more, God's going to give us the grace. I mean, either he's going to come back or he's going to give us the grace to deal with whatever judgments around us. I mean, I think he'll protect his children. But you say, well, what can you do about national sin? What can you do? Well, first of all, in your own In your own Christian life, you can walk uprightly before the Lord each day, be an example of Christ. Don't blend in with the world. Um, You know, we're we're complete hypocrites if we call others to repentance and we go to church and yet, you know, we're we're storing up secret sin in our own life. And so we, we have to pray, even as Abraham pled with the Lord about the judgment of Sodom and Gomorrah. I mean, that's how passionate we should be. I hear a lot of believers saying, I just want the Lord to come back. (laughs) You know, well, yeah, I do too. But I'd also like to see some people that I know come to Christ first. (laughs) And we get so stuck on our, you know, we just want to be in heaven and sitting on a cloud somewhere. You know, we need to remember that, hey, you know, God's got that part of the plan taken care of, right? I mean, he's going to save who he's going to save. And we're just here to, to spread the message of his forgiveness uh, through Christ. And I think, you know, if you really want him to come back, um, then get busy evangelizing. Because you're not going to come back until the last person who's elect is saved. So you just have to remind yourself of that. Um, We must do all we can to call others to repentance. And you can't be complacent about the violence and and all the stuff we see going on all around us. we just have to continue to share the message of the gospel. So temporal judgment is a real danger. And um, if America comes under judgment, which I think it already is there, um, we're not going to ex- escape it just because we know the Lord. Well, what about eternal judgment? What is that? Whereas temporal judgment can be lifted, and we've seen that several times through our studies, right? God, God heard their cry and he delivered them. Um, eternal judgment, it's much, much more serious. It's fixed, it's final, and it's ultimate. It's, you're not going to change this. Uh, Hebrews 9.27 says it's appointed for men, what? Once to die, then what? Then the judgment, period. After this comes the judgment. All sin will be judged. When you come to Christ, the good thing is, is he took the judgment for you on Calvary, right? You're putting your faith, your trust in his sacrifice. God can't just shrug off sin. I mean, you may not like the idea of God judging sin. You may think that the notion of God punishing, quote, good people in the flames of hell for all eternity is sadistic and cruel. And you may say, you know what, I don't want to believe in a God like that. I believe that God is a God of love, and he forgives everybody. Well, just because you believe it doesn't make it true, right? His word is true, and it tells us what his plan is. Um, The question you have to come to grips with was, 
is, is Jesus Christ, was Jesus Christ a liar? Was he not telling the truth when he spoke of hell? When he spoke of judgment? Was he a charlatan? Was he somebody that was just out there trying to, you know, manipulate people to follow him? Or is he the, the true and living word of God who was revealed by the Father and who he claimed to be? The way, the truth, the life. See, if you, if you shrug him off at this point, you're going to have to face him someday. That's just the way it works. And when we get into 2 Thessalonians, we're going to see in, in chapter 1, verse 7 and 9, it says, When he comes from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, dealing out retribution to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of the Lord Jesus. And these will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. See, if you believe the witness that Christ is the Savior of the, the world, then you must believe and you have to submit to his witness about the terrors of hell. You can't pick one and leave the other. Jesus really used the most frightening word pictures to describe it. In Mark 9, 48, he says it's a place where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. These are words that the Lord used about God's eternal judgment. In Matthew 25, 30, he says it's a place of utter darkness, of weeping and gnashing of teeth. Or in Matthew 25, 41, a place of eternal fire. See, this isn't some user-friendly sort of place. You're not going to be down there partying with your friends. That, that's not hell. That's what the enemy wants you to think. That's not what hell is. But I thought, God is a God of love. Won't he forgive everyone's sin? He'll forgive your sin if you trust in his Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. So God's judgment is expressed temporally and e eternally, but it's also certain because of his character. And this is kind of the final thought here. God's judgment is certain because of his character. For God to be God, hopefully you'll agree with this, he has to be holy, right? He can't be unholy. Um, an unrighteous supreme being would not be God. It would be who? The devil, right? So, I mean, if God is holy, to be righteous and to resolve the problem of evil, he must judge all sin. And if sin goes unpunished, then guess what? God is not just. God's love and grace never, ever negate his holiness and his righteousness. You, you get the whole package. You can't, you're not allowed to say, well, I just want to believe in a God of love. I don't want to talk about the holiness or the judgment and all that stuff. You can't do that with God. While his patience is great, it never negates his righteousness. Because God will always keep his word. If he didn't, he would be a what? A liar. Therefore, he wouldn't be God. Um, God had told Mo Moses back in Leviticus chapter 25, verses 1 to 7, he told Moses, every seventh year was to be a year of rest for the land <coughs> of Israel, the, the physical land. In other words, I don't want you planting anything. 
Now think about that. <clears throat> that year, the people were not allowed to put anything in the ground. Well, where did they get their food? From the ground, right? So, I mean, that's a pretty big deal. That would be like telling us, you know what? On the seventh year of your existence here, you're not allowed to go to the store and buy anything. I mean, we don't necessarily go out and work a crop, <clears throat> but we go to the store. And that year, you're not allowed to. But you know what? But God promised to make it up to them with a bountiful crop. He said, I don't want you to plant anything, but I'm still going to take care of you. That took some faith to believe, would it not? Can you imagine not going to the grocery store for an entire year and trusting God to provide for you? That would take some faith. God also said <coughs> that if the people do not obey, <laughs> that he would what? He said he would scatter them from the land until the land enjoyed its Sabbaths. See, would God expect his people to abide by some, secure, by, by some obscure passage in Leviticus? Well, look at what verse 21 says. It says God's word is true, right? To fulfill the word of the Lord. That's exactly what it is. Galatians 6, 7 says, Do not be deceived. God is not, what? Mocked. For whatever a man sows, that will he also reap. I mean, God's word is like the law of gravity. If you break it, it turns around and it breaks you. Okay, you don't get to go up on top of the roof of the church and jump off and say, well, I don't believe in gravity. Well, you know, it doesn't matter. You're going to go splat on the ground, right? Um, and as God's justice, as his holiness, as his truth, he will judge sin. And he will judge it temporarily when people continue to reject his word but he will also judge it eternally if a person rejects the word of Christ, rejects Christ in his lifetime. And that's because his judgment, just because it isn't quick, it isn't instant, does not mean that it isn't certain. So we can't, you can't guarantee me, I can't guarantee you that judgments from God will not fall on our nation. I don't know. I think it already is happening. But we can live, we can pray, we can work toward the end that he will spare us. But we can't be certain. We may feel some of the pain. Um, but every person here can be certain about escaping God's eternal judgment on a personal level. Because the scripture says in 1 Peter 3.18, God died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, in order that he what? Might bring us to God. This is God's desire. 2 Corinthians 5.21, God made Christ who what? Knew no sin to be sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God in him. That righteousness comes to us not by our good deeds, not by coming to church, not by giving an offering or anything, doing, helping a little old lady across the street, nothing like that, but only through faith in Jesus Christ. If you'll trust in him, your sins will be charged to his account and you will escape God's coming wrath. Jesus himself said in John 5:24, "He who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life." You can know for certain 
and does not come into judgment, he says, but has passed out of death into life. You have up to the point of death, your last breath, really, to trust in Christ, to escape God's eternal judgment. And I've dealt with young people enough to realize usually their answer is, hey, I'm young. I'm going to have some fun first. You know, if you're saying I can wait till I'm right before I die, then I'll come to Christ, right? Well, that's kind of foolish if you have that kind of mentality um, because your heart could be hardened beyond remedy as these people's were, or you could die today. You could die right now. You don't know when you're going to die. Or Christ could come back at any moment. And if you're without Christ, you'd be lost forever. You're really gambling against eternity. I don't know if you remember reading this or seeing this on the evening news, but back in 1982, the ABC Evening News reported on an unusual work of modern art. Here's what it was. It was a chair, and affixed to the chair was a shotgun. And it was to be viewed by sitting in the chair and looking directly into the barrel of the shotgun. There's a piece of art. It goes further. The gun was loaded and set on a timer to fire at an undetermined moment within the next 100 years. You know what was amazing? They said people lined up around the block. They waited in line to sit and stare into the barrel of that gun. They all knew if that it could go off at any moment, point-blank rage. I mean, you'd clearly be dead at any moment. And they were gambling that the fatal blast wouldn't happen during their minute in the chair. I don't know about you, but I wouldn't do that. I just couldn't do that. The question is, you know, you could be sitting in that chair today. You could be betting that gun won't go off, won't blow your face off. Unless you put your faith, your trust in Christ, you're really playing with what? Your eternal destiny. Yes, God is patient. God is loving. But if you continue to reject his word, judgment is certain. And I would flee to Christ today, now, if you, if you need to. Father, we thank you for this study, Lord. I know that your word is true, and, and Lord, it's hard to see these, these people who continually reject your offer of salvation. They continually reject um, their opportunity to humble themselves under a holy God. And yet, Father, we're no different from them. We, we go throughout days, probably, where we're doing our own thing. We're not humbly coming before you. We're, we're being prideful in our own view of ourselves, even as Christians. And Father, we need to knock it off and we need to get on our knees and, and, and be humble before you and begin to thank you for our salvation, not feel that we're entitled to it. 
And Lord, that should affect how we see others who have yet to come to Christ. And Lord, that should put a real passion in our hearts to go out and to share this good news of the gospel that transformed our lives with others who have yet to believe. And Lord, we know that we can't stay your ultimate judgment of this world because your word is true and it says that everything we see around us will one day be destroyed. Heaven and earth will be destroyed. But Father, we can definitely work to see more come to know you and your son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, you've left us here for a purpose, not just to have fun and and play in the world, but Lord, you've left us here to preach the gospel, to, to share the gospel, to share the good news, to live a life that's worthy of Christ so that people would be drawn to Christ through our lives even. And Father, we pray that you would uh, use us here in the Bay Area, this dark corridor we live in, where the message of the gospel is not very well liked. And, and Lord, even those that do go to church are very nominal in their faith. Lord, I pray that we would change, that we would stand out, that we would move heaven and earth to be able to come and to worship together as the body of Christ. Whether it's a Sunday, whether it's a Wednesday, whether it's a Tuesday. Lord, we pray that you would keep that desire in our hearts and that we would grow in our faith more and more each day and that we can affect change here in this Bay Area through your power and through the power of your word and the power of the Holy Spirit. And Father, we just uh, thank you for our time here tonight. Thank you for the blessing of this study and the different kings that we've looked into over these many weeks. And we just pray that you would continue to remind us of your truth. And we pray this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Amen. Amen.